Every year, more than 2,000 women in Minnesota report to police that they were raped or sexually assaulted. Coming forward takes courage. It takes guts. And it relies on a belief that the system will deliver justice. But more often than not, women who speak up are left feeling defeated, hopeless, and blamed. It was just the police initially basically saying to them, this isn't going to go anywhere and or I don't believe you. Sorry. That's it. We're done. On this week's episode, Abby Ivory-Ganya talks with Brandon Stahl of the Minneapolis Star Tribune about the paper's reporting into how law enforcement investigates rape or fails to do so. The Star Tribune's analysis of more than a thousand cases found that in almost half, police failed to interview potential witnesses. In about a third, the investigator never interviewed the victim. And in a quarter, police never even assigned an investigator to the case. For many women, the process of reporting their assault was another form of trauma. These victim stories were just so powerful, so heartbreaking, and told to us over and over and over again. And many of them told us that reporting to police was just as bad, if not worse, than the actual assault. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. sentencing is usually pretty straightforward for a court's reporter. But two years ago, Brandon Stahl sat in a sentencing that was unlikely. he just started covering the courts in Hennepin County, the largest county in Minnesota. And he was reporting on the sentencing of a University of Minnesota student who was facing charges for raping two of his peers. He met one of the victims. The story that she had to tell me was jaw-dropping, that when she right away reported and right away felt blamed by the police when she was being loaded into the ambulance, she said that one of the officers told her, you know, you might not want to tell your parents about this because it's really embarrassing. Minneapolis police arrested the suspect but released him after a few days, deciding not to press charges. The case was closed, but after nearly a year, an investigator from another police department picked up her case and brought charges against her rapist, who was sentenced to six years in prison. In reporting that story, what I learned was that cases where a victim has to crawl across glass to get justice, that's not unusual. That's what I'm being told by victim advocates police and attorneys all over the places I'm reporting the story. What was unusual was that she actually got a conviction. So he started looking at sexual assault cases at the University of Minnesota that were handled by Minneapolis police. And a pattern started to emerge that a lot of these cases, frankly, weren't even investigated, that there would be a report made, and that was that. Nothing else happened. Or if they were investigated, very little was done. Brandon started calling experts across the country and asking if they could help him understand the pattern he was seeing. They encouraged him to take a look at more cases, broadening his scope out to Minneapolis and even the whole state. They said the pattern he'd noticed was playing out across Minnesota. And so my editor said, do it. And we did. We started pulling these case files from around the state. When Brandon looked at other reporting on sexual assault, he noticed that most of it seemed to focus on a subset, like untested rape kits or unfounded cases. 
The Star Tribune wanted to step back and look at the entire system. They did exclude a few areas, namely incest and in cases involving children. But aside from that, everything else was on the table. We wanted to say, well, let's back up and take a look at all of these cases. No matter, you know, if it was acquaintance rape, stranger rape, if it involved alcohol, it didn't, whether it was resulted in a charge or not, we wanted to look at this entire universe of cases. They requested every closed case in Minneapolis and St. Paul in 2015 and 2016. They also requested a random sample of police reports from the 20 law enforcement agencies in Minnesota that reported the highest number of sexual assault cases to the FBI, including the Twin Cities. It ended up being about half of all sex assaults reported in the state. Overall, that turned out to be well over 2,000 records. We've probably received maybe 1,500, 1,600 by this point. A lot of these requests went out in the summer of 2017, and getting these records wasn't easy. It was a fight with almost every agency to get these records. Under our state law, it clearly says you need to keep your data in a way that's easily accessible to the public, and they were not doing that. It wasn't like these were quick turnarounds. It took months for these agencies to get these records back to us. That's when Mary Jo Webster, the Star Tribune's data editor, got involved. It was her job to turn the documents into data. We realized that we wanted to build a, a more formal database than an Excel spreadsheet. And we also wanted to make sure that we were capturing metrics in these files that could be easily analyzed. So was an interview conducted as an easy yes or no, right? After 100 cases, or say, how many cases were, were interviews with victims, suspects, witnesses, etc. conducted? Mary Jo created a system that allowed the team to enter every police report into a centralized database. She created kind of like a form that we could fill out as we were reviewing each case. So we'd enter the case number, the city or the department. You know, if there was an investigator assigned, who was the investigator? Or if there was no investigator, then we'd put investigator. We put a suspect name, a victim name if we if we had it, you know, and then general allegations. I mean, it just kept going on and on like this. It could take us anywhere from, say, 30 minutes to several hours to enter a single case. From there, Mary Jo analyzed the data for trends. And the pattern that Brandon initially saw after he dug into some cases from the University of Minnesota, it still held up. After 50 cases, our results really haven't changed even after we've entered 1,200 in terms of one out of four of these cases is being sent to prosecutors. Half of these cases, uh, witnesses aren't being interviewed. And even as we enter more of these cases, that data generally stays the same. Even though the findings stayed consistent, the analysis was essential to the story. It made our reporting, I think, sharper and stronger. It clearly could back up what we're finding anecdotally with victims, what we're hearing anecdotally from police and from experts around the state and the country. Brandon says this story couldn't have happened without the police reports. I don't know of any other way to do this story than to look at the case files themselves. You have to look at those records to really understand what happened, you know, what, what is being reported, and then how the police responded to it. And when you start looking at not just one, two, but dozens of cases, you really start to get a good picture of what's going on. It didn't take long to realize the extent of the problem with Minnesota's system. I think it was after, say, the third or fourth interview with a victim who had a similar story I reported and something awful happened instead of getting 
justice or being treated in a way that was somebody who was reporting a rape, how you would expect that person to be treated. When you speak with a fourth person, you're realizing, is there something really wrong here? When women reported assaults to police, they were often surprised by the way officials treated them. Most of them said they were expecting justice. They were expecting, I was raped. I expected something to be done against the man who raped me. And more often than not, they received the exact opposite. More often than not, they were re-traumatized by how police and or prosecutors treated them. And the way police questioned them, along with the questions asked, only made it worse. Often they told us they felt quite blamed by law enforcement. They were asked questions, you know, what were you wearing? Why were you drinking? How much did you have to drink? How often have you had sex with this man before? Questions that you know, pertaining to an actual assault, don't really get you anywhere in an investigation and instead just leave the victim feeling blamed and wanting to drop out of the case entirely. Police told Brandon the nature of these cases made investigations difficult. The universal response basically was, well, these cases are so hard to investigate and so early on we can determine whether or not you know, if this would ever be go to court, result in a conviction, and if we feel early on that that's not going to happen, well, then we'll just why continue to investigate? And I'm boiling that down to, you know, it's bare essence, but that's essentially what we heard over and over again. Jennifer Bjorhus joined the team at the end of 2017. She's an investigative reporter at the paper, and one of her jobs was to work with Brandon to find and interview victims. Police had redacted victim names from the records before giving them to the paper, so they had to find other ways to identify them. One strategy was to ask advocacy groups if anyone would want to talk about their experience with police. Court records also helped, too. If criminal charges had been filed in a case, sometimes those documents would include a name. In other cases, restraining orders against suspects provided useful leads. And the fourth way was a lot of these records had um, witnesses who were named and contact information, and that was not redacted. And we would call the witnesses up, tell them what we're doing, why we're doing it, and ask if they would put us in contact with, with the survivors. The team has contacted nearly 150 women, and Brandon says about three-quarters of them initially agreed to talk. But when the reporters would ask if they could name and write about their experiences, only a quarter of the women said yes. Put yourself in their shoes. Got this reporter <laughs> calling them up saying, hey, I want to talk to you about the absolute worst moment in your life. Would you do that for me? You know, we didn't say it that way, but essentially that's what we're asking. Can we talk about this really awful, tragic moment? A lot of them had no desire to revisit that and completely understandable why. But others were ready to talk. Some of them said yes. I've been waiting for somebody to call and talk about this. This what happened to me was terrible and I want to tell my story. Others, you know, they were interested in talking. They needed to think about it. Can you give me a call back or I can call you back? You know, if they didn't call back, then I would call them and just try to figure out where they're at. Earlier in the reporting process, when they were trying to figure out how to organize the data, the reporters also read through best practice guides by organizations like the International Chiefs of Police and Violence Against Women International. Those resources also helped when they were interviewing victims. One of the things I'd tell you to do is to not interrupt. Let silence be a, a tool for you in these interviews, because a lot of times 
survivors are the way that trauma works you know they're, they're trying to, to piece these memories back together a lot of times memories are fragmented they don't remember everything chronologically they don't remember some of the key details about an assault at all because they're in moments of trauma they're just not focusing on that they're focusing on life or death type of situations for many of these women this was their first time talking to a reporter empathy sympathy understanding making sure that that they understand that you just want their story, their side of the story, that you're not here to judge, question, that you are here to be a reporter and to understand in the system. The team also tried to be as straightforward as possible. I was fully transparent about here's who I am, here are the stories that we're doing, here's why I'm talking to you. Any question you have, I will fully answer anything that you have, because we also wanted to make sure that the survivors felt in control of their stories as much as possible. I mean, obviously we're gonna be the final arbiter of what we put in the story, but survivors have lost that control. And we wanted to, when telling these stories, as much as we could give that back to them. They also reached out to some of the men accused of assault, but the majority of them didn't want to talk. The stories really aren't about them. They are in a small way, but really these stories are about what happened after when the survivor reported How did the police respond? How did the prosecutor respond? The Star Tribune wasn't investigating individual cases or a couple of bad actors. It was about the larger system that investigates and prosecutes sexual assault and how victims felt they were treated by that system. Many of them told us that reporting to police was just as bad, if not worse, than the actual assault. In 2017, Brandon started compiling a list of veteran sexual assault investigators from across the country. He'd talked to a handful of them early on when he was trying to understand what was happening with cases from the University of Minnesota. But this time he wanted to know if they'd be willing to review some cases the team was looking at or direct him to other experts who would. One of the experts even put together an email and sent it around to others in the field, telling them about the project and asking if they'd help. The panel of experts included investigators, detectives, and leaders of sex crime units. Some of them had pioneered new techniques to investigate sexual assault. A lot of the the investigators that we reached out to, they were kind of known, even in the industry, as, you know, these are the consultants you bring in when your department is broken. The reporters wanted to understand how Minnesota's system was performing in the eyes of experts. And when that moment came, Brandon would usually give them a call to explain what he was looking for. I would ask them, hey, here's what we're doing. Would you please help? And they were like, sounds great. Very interested in helping. We didn't want to just say, hey, we're, you know, we're two journalists and we know what to do. And we sent out 160 of these case files, a really good sampling of what we had at the time. And asked them just yes or no. Was this case adequately handled? Have some thoughts on it, great, but that's really all we want to know. Each of the 13 investigators looked at a subset of the 160 case files. Their yes or no answers became another metric in their database and helped inform the team's reporting. You know, we were able to, to send them a case and say, you know, we're seeing this, but help us out here. Is this the right way to do it? Or is this wrong? And they would like, you know, look it through the case file and say, you know what, no, this is 
this is not the way it's supposed to be. Or they would say, you know what? Based on what the evidence the police had, they did the best they could do. I was very helpful. And served as advisors throughout the way, too. The experts didn't hold back on their criticisms, but they were mostly commenting on the system as a whole. Certainly they didn't want to look like they were being critical of a specific officer or investigator. They were being critical of techniques or lack of training or lack of resources. There was a, a an officer who was on our panel, and he said just over and over again, it was clear to him that there's just a lack of training for these officers. And a lot of the other consultants, experts, you know, mirrored that. The first set of three stories published in late July. And since then, the Star Tribune has published two more stories in the series, One looked at a lack of training for police officers, and the other examined how half of sex assault cases sent to prosecutors never resulted in charges. There are at least two more pieces in the works, and the rollout was a deviation from their original plan. The initial plan to run five-day-in-a-row series sometime in November after the election before Thanksgiving. But early on, when we were able to, you know, we had about seven to eight hundred cases, and the data was there for us to say, okay, even though we don't have all the case files, we still have very strong, strong findings. We have a lot of survivors who are telling us their stories, who are backing up our analysis. Why not come out now and say very clearly, you know, we're not done yet. We still have a lot of work to do to really understand what's going on here, but here's what we're finding so far. And to kind of take the readers along with us as we continue to investigate and learn more about the system that we have in Minnesota. A few days after the first stories published, the governor, along with state and federal lawmakers, called for measures to improve the system. Within a few weeks, Minneapolis police announced they'll hire a full-time victim advocate to work alongside sex crime investigators. And the Minnesota Attorney General set up a task force to come up with law and policy reforms by the end of the year, before the state's legislative session starts in January. Several legislators are pledging next session to bring forth bills that would address a lot of the problems that we've outlined and identified in the story. The, the reader reaction has been amazing. We've had dozens of victims come forward to us wanting to tell their stories as well. And as for the women who shared their experiences, Brandon said they were happy with how the stories turned out. One woman they interviewed originally didn't want the paper to use her name, so the team recorded her story in a video but concealed her identity. And when the story came out, she was so happy with it that she said, you know, I want my identity concealed anymore. I want to go fully on record with this. I want my name to go with this. And I was actually interviewed by a a local public access weekly news show, and they asked me to bring a survivor on with me to talk about the series, and she came on with me. It was just amazing. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about how the Minneapolis Star Tribune built its database of police reports, make sure to check out our episode notes. We'll have links to an explainer by Mary Jo Webster, as well as resources for interviewing victims of trauma. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. On our next episode, we're going behind bars, but not in the way you'd expect. We'll be talking with journalists and academics working to amplify the voices of inmates. The Marshall Project's Eli Hager walks us through the nonprofit's life inside feature, 
and two UMass Amherst senior lecturers take us inside a prison where they're teaching university students and inmates how to be journalists. There is no way a person can really understand what it means to be incarcerated unless they are experiencing that, experiencing those moments in solitude, those moments of chaos, those moments of sheer boredom that the inmates told us about. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Abby Evry-Ganya reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.